Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster, and a writer, and I am your chief investigator of images. Now, I am exceptionally excited because, as some of you might know, I am a bit of a lover of all things Gothic, and particularly a lover of all things Neil Gaiman. I am joined by a hero of mine, and somebody that I cannot believe you found the time to talk to me because you are so busy at the moment, aren't you? Where are we? What are we doing um, here? Right now, we are in a uh, Bulstrode Manor, which I believe once long, long, long ago belonged to Judge Jeffries, the, the hanging judge. Um, we've done it up, uh, these, these green and white walls and the brown paint and all of the stuff um, was actually created by us because it's become a convent of an order of chattering nuns <laughs> who are like silent nuns only they talk all the time and um a satanic baby swap is even now occurring oh. right down at the end of that hall as as daniel mays and sean brooks and and various people are, are having babies being swapped all around them it's a um, it's a gothic dream isn't it it really is <laughs> it's, it's kind of fun and it's just about to be turned into a paintballing place for the scene 11 years later in the book. Cause, so that's what that's where we are right now yeah. and I, I'm here on on set. For good omens um, of course for those who are it is, it is. So this is a book written uh, almost 30 years ago, something like 28 years ago by Terry Pratchett and me called Good Omens, subtitled The Nice and Accurate Prophecies of Agnes Nutter Witch and it's uh, the uh, Basically, I like to think of it as the funniest book ever written about the end of the world and how we're all going to die. Excellent. Nice, positive, exciting. I like <laughs> think so. But I think it, it, this brings us very quickly onto the reason that, that um, I'm so excited to talk to you, because you have a love of the old, very medieval, i.e. the Vikings. But I think there's, there's, there's a lot of medieval running right the way through what you do, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I, I love... Um, I, I love medieval worldview. Mm. Um, you know, you talk about science fiction, you talk about fantasy, and then you look at what people thought and believed, and, and you wind up with something that actually you could not invent or could not invent as easily. There are, there are beautiful books, um, beautiful books of history where you start going, What's that wonderful story? Um, the Littlest Elephant. <laughs> you know, the idea of that, that they believed that elephants had this thing where if an elephant could not get up, uh, all of the elephants would come and try and lift the elephant who could not get up. And if it was so bad that none of them could lift him, they would put out a call and the littlest elephant would come. This mm -hmm. tiny elephant, but the strongest elephant of all, and it would lift. The elephant up, and, it, and you'll find this in medieval bestiaries. Absolutely. And I just look at that story, and I go, I want to live in a world that has the littlest elephant. In. Oh, that, yeah. And to me, again, I think it's it's something that it hits you young. But the idea that the real and the fantastical are never too far apart, and that the the worldview can take both of those, it's something we're losing, isn't it? I well, I wish we were losing it. I think um, you know, human beings have always been very, very good at 
believing a bunch of often absolutely contradictory things at the same time. Um, I think what you're getting now is a kind of information overload in which people are having to believe a lot of, you know, a ridiculous number of contradictory things at the same time just to make sense of the world. And very often, in order to then make sense of the world, they start believing cartoon versions, simplified versions, um, you know, it's that sort of thing where you talk to people and you start realizing, oh, that wasn't what you, what you voted for wasn't what you thought you were voting for. What you were voting for was for it to be 1964 again because you really liked 1964 or whatever. And things like that go around the world mm. and you just go, it, it, it bears as much relationship to reality as some of the peculiar medieval worldviews may have done. I, I, I love that. I'm going to use that to justify all my weird medieval worldviews. But there is something in, um, I mean, we have a shared love of the Viking in particular, and, and your book on Norse mythology is wonderful because it's bringing those sagas back to life, back to audiences. It, I, I think that is vitally important. What, what drew you to them in particular? Um, well, I've, I've loved them since I was a kid. Mm. I, I, my first ever encounter with, with Norse mythology was probably the mighty Thor in a comic called, I think it was either Terrific or Fantastic, a long, long, long time ago, they were British reprints of American comics, mm -hmm. and they reprinted some of these Thor stories from the beginning. Um, but almost immediately after that, having discovered the Thor stuff, I then um, got a copy of, I think it was called Myths of the Norsemen by Roger Lanceling Green. Oh, yes. And read that and went, well, this is really interesting because they're, they're just as interesting as the ones in the Marvel comics. They're just different. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, years later, um, running into the Kevin Crossley Holland retellings and just reading them and going, oh, I love this. These are great. And reading the stories. And at that point, being interested enough to actually finally go and read the prose editor and the poetic editors and love them, um, and then get asked back in about 2008 if I would turn them, um, if I had any interest in just retelling So you myths. asked if you wanted to do it? Well, actually, I, no, I had a lunch with a publisher, mm. and they said, would you like to retell myths? Gosh. And I, I, I spent about a year keeping them dangling. <laughs> and then I said, actually, because I couldn't figure out what I could do that the Kevin Crossley Holland, well, that lots of retellings had, yeah. hadn't done before. And then, um, it was actually a lot like many, many years earlier when I was doing a comic called Sandman. Mm -hmm. And I remember having the idea of retelling Orpheus, doing the Orpheus story. And in my head, I assumed that everybody knew the story of Orpheus really well. So the story that I had planned was a whole set of like almost jazz riffs on Orpheus. And, and I was traveling around America doing a signing tour for comics and people would say, so what's coming up? And I was saying, well, I'm gonna do this, this Orpheus special. And, and they would say, who was Orpheus? Orpheus? Yeah. And by the end of the tour, I went, I'm not doing clever jazz riffs on Orpheus. I'm just going to tell them the story. And I did the Sandman special, the Song of Orpheus, and it was just a completely straight retelling, which wove Sandman characters into the story. Um, but it was a very, very straight retelling because I went, people need to understand the story in order to understand what I'm doing with it. And really, I think the same was true with the Norse myths. I started thinking, you know, people, I would talk to people and realize they don't know these stories. Um, what can I bring to it that Kevin Crossley Holland didn't or that Roger Lanson Green didn't? Well, I can tell it. And maybe I'll be telling them to different people. And, and I remember writing the very first one and I think it was um, 
think the first one I wrote was probably, you know, Thor's Wedding. I was wondering if you did them out of sequence, actually, yeah. Oh, absolutely yeah. do them out of sequence. Just, I, I needed to find the voice. Yeah. yeah. And what was lovely about that was by the end of writing that, sitting there with the poem in the prose editor in front of me, mm. and just going back and going, okay, well, what's great is this is a poem. So I will not contradict anything in the poem. I will use every detail in the poem, but a poem doesn't give you dialogue. A poem doesn't give you motivation. A poem doesn't tell you what people thought or felt when they did things, and I can do that. And, and so I, I retold it. And by the time I got to the end, it was like, okay, this is my, I can do this. This is fun. Well, that's what you brought. You brought humanity to those, uh, the emotions. And I suppose the, the trappings we'd expect of modern literature in terms of trying to understand the motivations and all the rest of it, which as that's in a way what I love about the original stories is they are so, in a way, so brutal and stripped down, aren't they? And also some of them are obviously car crashes <laughs> in that... You're going, this is not one story. The, the beautiful story, the Kvasir, Kvesir, um, who was the wisest of all the gods, who was created out of gods spitting, mixing their spittle, and they formed a god, the, the Aesir and the Vanir, joining forces, forming a god out of spittle, sending him off into the world. He gets murdered by two evil dwarves. <laughs> They form the mead of poets out of his blood. They cook his blood into the special magic mead. And then you get the story of how Odin gets the mead back. And you read this and you go, this is not one story. There is no through line from beginning to end that makes any sense. This is like a half-remembered bunch of stories all crushed together. And they've gone, well, let's take that story about, you know, Odin doing this stuff and let's take this and we'll have the mead in there. And, the, and so the fun with a story like that actually became taking a story which doesn't really work for a modern reader in the sense of you don't get from the beginning to the end. Mm -hmm. You just sort of start and you bump your way through it mm -hmm. um, and try and make it feel like it was all one thing. Yeah, which you do brilliantly, and and I think in a way that, that actually you're right. And Kevin Crossley Holland's amazing, but but the, there is a sense in which you've given narrative and, and a sense of a structure to these well, stories, which is and which is completely imposed from without. Mm -hmm. um, which is you know one of the things that Kevin Crossley Holland does that is amazing is he just takes stories and puts them down. And yes, you you can begin at the beginning and you're going to end at Ragnarok because that's <laughs> that's the structure that you always have. Yeah. Um, what I tried to do was make it feel like it had a narrative through line. Yeah. And the narrative through line tends to become Loki's because he changes. Yeah, you know, it's like the rule of character is who changes. <laughs> Whose story is it? It's the person who is not the same person at the end that he was at the beginning. Yeah. And everybody else is pretty much the same person. You know, Odin doesn't change. Mm -hmm. Thor doesn't change, bless his heart. <laughs> Um, but, but Loki begins as this sort of charming god who is smarter than all of the others. He's not quite of their number, he's part of them. And then he just gets darker and he gets more resentful. And instead of having to... You know, he begins as a classic, beautiful trickster figure. Mm -hmm. And the joy of all tricksters in literature is they have to get themselves using their heads out of the trouble that they got themselves into by using their heads. They're too clever for their own good, so now, you know, Loki, all of the gods are basically, you know, a, a giant in disguise turns up and says, I will build a wall for you. All of, the, all of the gods are going, oh, I don't know, sounds dodgy to me. And Loki is the one who goes, well, it may sound dodgy to you, but think about it. We could do this, we could do that, and what are we saying? I'll never do it. And, and he talks all of them into it. And then he watches as he's now about to be outsmarted, and then the gods say to him, okay, you, you got us into this, you have to get us out of this, which he does by um, the glorious expedient of becoming a mayor 
mm-hmm. and luring away the stallion that the giant is using and uh, getting knocked up and giving Odin his horse, which is this sort of wonderful by, you know, by blow. I think, that, I mean, this is another thing that I think fascinates me about the way that you've melded um, the, the things that have obviously influenced you in literature. Um, and then that's, that's become something creative. But in a way, I mean, the, the, in, when, I, when I look at things like American Gods, and I have to explain to people who Mr. Wednesday is. Yep. <laughs> and you're right, you know, there is, there, there is a, a loss of those original stories. And so in the retelling, you're, you're bringing your own creativity to it, but you're also bringing life to the stories that have passed. I'm, yes, it's like my rules were, I wasn't allowed to make stuff up. <laughs> and I really wanted to. You know, the, I, I talk in the introduction in Norse mythology about my frustration with the gods who are women. Oh, there are female gods, lots of them, and they have names and they have job functions. And you're going, great, so what are their stories? I'm so glad you And <laughs> you don't get their stories. They fall, and, and you're going, well, you had stories. Mm-hmm. Maybe the stories were told by women to women. Maybe Snorri hadn't heard them, he's writing you know, he's writing stuff down 200 years after Christianity's come in. He's writing stuff down so that poets mm-hmm. will know what the kennings are, the, 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 the poetic expressions. You know, gold in Norse poetry was Freya's ransom. The sea was the whale road. And, but in order to understand why is it Freya's ransom, you need to uh, you need to know the story. So his his justification for retelling this pagan stuff was I am doing this for as a reference work for future poets, essentially. Um, as so many different scholars have made the excuse for preserving mythology exactly. over I'm, the years, I will preserve yeah. this stuff as as a teaching as aid. a teaching aid, yeah. and that really was exactly it. The but. The biggest thing that you get a sense of in Norse mythology is how much we don't have. Mm -hmm. And we don't have the female gods. There are references, um, even in the surviving myths, to stories that don't exist. Um, You know, there's a whole fancy one about um, Loki and Hemdal in seal form fighting Mm. for Freya's necklace. We don't have the we story. We don't have the story. And, and it's frustrating. I mean, I, I study the artifacts that come out of this world as well. So things like the Frank's casket, where you have an entire mythological scene playing out on the side and no literary references to support it. But you know there was a story there. Yeah. And, and the temptation, I mean, this is the, uh, the beauty of being able to take it and be creative, like you do, is almost to, to want to write those stories in. I, that was really, I mean, I, I wanted to do that so much and didn't. Mm. Um, and didn't for two reasons. One, it was that thing of, I am playing fair. This is a, I, I don't know that I would ever go so far as to describe Norse mythology as a scholarly work. It's not, but it's absolutely solid as a work of reference. Yeah. Um, you know, you can, you can argue with something, but I can cite sources. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, it's a body, isn't it? It, 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 it is, yeah. so, you know, it's solid. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I would love to go in and make stuff up. Mm. And I would love to fill, fill in the gaps. I love, there's an author named John James mm. who wrote a book called Votan. And he, he, he wrote two books I love and some books that I didn't. Um, but the two books that I love, uh, Votan is the first and uh, Not For All The Golden Ireland is the second. And they are a, a hero, Fotinus, a Greek trader who goes to what is sort of somewhere in ancient Germany, perhaps ancient Denmark, first, second century, and essentially comes back with one eye and you realize that all of the entire body of Norse myths is about him and his trading adventures. Wow. Um, you know, and they couldn't say Fotinus, so his name becomes Votan. And the second book, Not For All The Golden Ireland, of course, now he comes to England and, to, and through to, to Wales, and all of the stories, pretty much of the Mabinogion, happened to him. Amazing. And it ends 
with him and a bunch of people on a boat and they are very, very obviously heading west uh, where probably all of South American mythology is gonna happen to him too. Um, and, and it's a beautiful way of doing it because it's as much about the mindset of what it was like to live and exist in the second century AD as it is about the myths, it is about the stories. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. Plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. So lots of literature has obviously influenced you. A lot that we have in common, things that I think are somewhere one foot in the medieval past, one in a fantastical world, one in the modern. But art too. And What's lovely with art is I first fell in love with art through comics. Mm. So the, the first place, you know, the first artists that I encounter and register are people like Bernie Wrightson, um, people like Neil Adams, um, people like Jack Kirby, and an English artist named Barry Windsor Smith, who started out as Barry Smith and then used his middle name and became Barry Windsor Smith. And Discovering Barry Windsor Smith, aged, whatever, 12, 13, he'd drawn Conan, his art, there was something absolutely fascinating. And somewhere in there, I read an interview with Barry Smith where he said he was influenced by the Pre-Raphaelites. Gosh. And you can and, see it, actually, in his line drawings and the delicacy. It's, oh, and it's also amazing. in these strange, flat-nosed women who all look like they, they were possibly sleeping with Dante, Gabriel, Rosetta. Wasn't everyone? Um, <laughs> so, um, so I went to the Tate, yeah. and as one does, um, and went because I wanted to see all of these paintings that had influenced Barry Smith. I, I thought, okay, well, I, I, they're out there. I want to see them. I want to see the Byrne Joneses. I want to see the Rosettis. I want to see all these things. But I didn't come out changed by them. But I came out changed, not the same person I was when I went into that gallery in the old Tate, in the pre-Raphaelite rooms, um, by a very, very small painting. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, I'd seen reproductions of it before, but I was astonished at how tiny it was because And the place I'd seen a reproduction of it before, peculiarly, was on the inside of a Queen album. Um, Back when all albums came in vinyl form, Queen 2, if you opened it up, it had a reproduction of a painting by Richard Dadd called The Fairy Fellas Masterstroke. And this is what we'll be talking about, which I... It it excites me hugely. And the idea that this was hanging alongside soft paintings by the pre-Raphaelites, Lady of Shalott and all the, you know, Beata Beatrice. All the things that are, they're, they're all, um, and I say this with love for the pre-Raphaelites, because there are people who would say this meaning it as a put down, but they're all postcards. Yeah. They're all images that 
you see on postcards, on on posters, chocolate boxes, chocolate boxes. <laughs> There's something glorious. And the weird thing about Richard Dad is he had kind of, although he, you know, he was never. Firstly, he was never a pre-Raphaelite. I don't know what he's doing in those rooms. Yeah. Secondly, he really did start out as a chocolate box painter. You look at his early work, and it would be polite to say there's nothing very interesting about it. It's sort of fairies and land, you know, yeah, fairies set nice, in the woods. They're and, perfectly yeah, they're nice. nice. Yeah. They look like they do belong on an upmarket books of chocolate. Absolutely. Um, he's a good painter. We should say a, that. Yeah, you know, absolutely. he's cut his teeth in the academy and nothing. Yeah. You know, he is a painter that you find yourself being incredibly polite about, <laughs> genuinely damning with faint praise. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. is there anything wrong with it? Well, no. no. Is there anything interesting about it? Possibly the subject matter in that he well, does love fair, the fairies. He does love his fairies. He does love his fairies. And you can feel that that fantasy world is creeping around the edges, can't you? But there's nothing interesting about what he has to say. No. And then he goes mad. Yes. And he goes mad horribly and tragically. He, um, he winds up murdering his father. Uh, and having murdered his father, he, he takes him for a walk on the heath, kills him, and then doesn't actually run away. What he actually does then is take the train, head off to France, the steamer to France, and is arrested on a train where he is planning to murder somebody else. Who the he emperor. Is I think it's the emperor of France. <laughs> I think yeah. it is, yeah. And, um, but then he goes a little bit even madder on the train in France and attacks a fellow passenger and is sent back to England, where he is put into Bedlam, in the final days of Bedlam, um, and before Broadmoor. And we have photographs of him, um, very beautiful, very strange photographs of him, which also, again, inform uh, the fairy fellow's masterstroke. And at that point, he doesn't paint anything for the first couple of years in Bedlam. And then he begins painting again. Mm. And now the paintings have power. Mm. Um, all of the paintings, all of the images he does after he is imprisoned, and he spends the rest of his life in prison, are beautiful, powerful, Many of them, but not all of them, are obsessively detailed. Yeah. You know, you think of him as doing the obsessively detailed stuff, but there's, there's some self-portraits, there's some Egyptian stuff mm. that, he, that, that isn't obsessively detailed, but it all has power, the use of color. Um, and then there is his masterstroke. Yeah. Which we have here. Which and we have here. I mean, this, this is a painting that I, I find disturbing in, in, and exciting in being disturbing because there are elements in this, aren't there? Or, or, people might look at this and think Hieronymus Bosch. I mean, there are the tiny, tiny details. But, but the thing that is so extraordinary about this, he worked on it for nine years. Yep. And it has got a three-dimensional quality, hasn't it? Because it's, it's layered. It is impossible to reproduce. Yes. So we begin with the most interesting thing for me about the Fairy Fellows Masterstroke, which is, as I say, the first time I encountered it, I stared at it for maybe three quarters of an hour. Really? And then I went down to the Tate shop hmm. and I bought a poster. And the post poster was about three times as big as the thing that I've been studying, hmm. and it lacked detail. <laughs> there was, yeah. you're going, there is information that was gone. You've, you've lost the buildup, you've lost the paint, on the daisies. You've lost the, the fact that all of these figures in this painting are at different scales. Um, I mean, that's, that's there, but it's not there. Um, the thing that I'd never ever understood until I saw it in real life, which still fascinates me, is the fact it's not finished. Right. He worked on it for nine years, and you have whole areas, including the most important thing in the painting, mm -hmm. um, which is the actual axe, oh. which is going to come down 
the fairy fella himself. This is his masterstroke. He has raised an axe to, yeah. to, to smite this conquer, um, the chestnut or the conquer that he's, he's going to open. Mm. And yet, that's not finished. Yeah. Do you know, There's I had several... not noticed that was unfinished. I knew about the corner, but you are absolutely right. That's left toe, isn't it? Yeah. That's the under, under that's, canvas. That's just I've never camp. seen that. That, that, that. This is the thing that fascinates me. And I, 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 you don't see it. You see it when you're looking at the original. Yeah. Yes, yes. Because you can see what's canvas and what's under canvas. Absolutely, But yeah. in reproductions, you just go, oh, okay, it's a light brown thing. Just as you go, those nuts are light brown. And it's yeah. like, nope, they're not finished. No, you're so And then right. once you get to the bottom third, you have a whole bunch of stuff that he... I mean, you, that's clearly unfinished. And, um, and in a way, I mean... I love the fact, it's, it's very, very much a modern art technique to show your workings. Absolutely. But this is not something in the eight, 1850s, 1860s that people wanted. But he, you know, he gave it away after nine years, Working knowing on it, it was unfinished. And he'd written, he'd written a poem yes. about all of the characters in it. Um, the weirdest thing for me is having seen the photograph of Richard Dad eyes glittering, working on, I think it's the marriage of Titania, the painting. It's the big oval one, isn't it? Yeah, that Andrew Lloyd Webber, I believe, owns. Um, <laughs> I did not know that. I, I, I think I knew that because at some point he let it go around the world and people right. looked at it. Probably now it's hanging in his loo. Um, but you, you get to see what Richard Dad looked like, this, this bearded figure staring at the camera with you know, you, you, are, you are bringing your preconceptions to him. You know this is a mad person. You know these are photos of the inhabitants of Bedlam. And yet you're looking at a kind of strange misery. And then you get to the most central character, and there are some very peculiar... You know, you could, you could argue for three characters probably being yeah. the central character in this. Um, you could argue for... The, there's a mysterious yeah. wizard... Yeah. Who, Which is very, again, the proportions are all over the exactly, place, aren't they? Because he's actually behind, he's bigger than a bunch of characters, but behind characters. Yeah. But he's not like man size. He's probably about, I don't know, two and a half feet high as opposed to a bunch of people who are eight inches Tiny, high. And then they're even smaller yeah. going up into there. And then there's the fairy fella himself. And you could say, well, he is the subject of this. But then there's yeah. this tiny yeah. figure of a bald, bearded, Elf, who is sitting... Um, now you've zoomed it in, I've just noticed the extraordinary look in his eyes. Oh, the, 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 My gosh, it's chilling, actually. He, he looks miserable. Mm. Um, he looks so... But they're so enlarged. And he, he has these huge eyes, and he's sitting there with his hands on... He's like a little, tiny study in misery. Yeah. And you... And, and, reminds me in a horrible way not only of not only does he look actually he looks like richard dad yeah and you go this was probably a self-portrait but he also looks like terry pratchett and he reminds me a lot of terry the last time i saw terry really you know a long way gone in alzheimer's and sitting very miserably and very silently and I would have to make an effort, or I was making an effort, but it, but it would take the deployment of the right words to pull Terry back into the world. Yeah. I remember there was a point where, you know, the last time I saw him where I couldn't get him to talk. So I started to sing and singing um, a They Might Be Giant song called Shoehorn With Teeth, which he and I sang when we were on our American signing tour for Good Omens almost 30 years earlier. And, and I, I sang, you know, she wants a shoehorn, the kind with teeth. People should get beat up for stating their belief. And Terry sort of looks up and he goes, she wants a shoehorn, the kind with teeth, because she knows there's no such thing. Yeah. And, and he was back and then we were talking and, and I thought, okay, that was really... So the magic was the, the music was the trigger to sort of bring him out well, and I, remind I, him. I'd read and I'd heard that we store songs in different parts of our brain and 
sometimes they're still there when other things are. And, and it was, it brought him out Gosh. and brought him back. And so that I just get reminded of. And of course, Terry loved this painting as much as I did. Terry and I would talk about it. There's one of the, um, one of the Tiffany Aching books um, where the, the villain is actually one of these wasp women. Yes, yes, of from, course, yeah. From this painting. Yes, but then um, doesn't Terry bring one of the characters into one of his books as well? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's, it's like, and Terry and I, are, you know, we loved, we loved this painting. We loved the strangeness of it. We loved the unfinishedness of it. We loved the feeling. Um, there are very few people who have drawn the fairy world in a way that just feels right in every possible way. I, the Norwegian artist Kittelsen, who, who did those wonderful um, trolls. Amazing, And yeah. the, there's a, I remember reading a thing where Kittelsen was told that some other artist, or saw the paintings by some other artist who, who you know, following on from Kittelsen's fame had started painting trolls too. And he said, well, how can he paint trolls? He hasn't, he's never seen any trolls. <laughs> And you're going, this is somebody who sees trolls and paints trolls. And you really feel with the fairy fellas masterstroke, this is somebody, the gulf between the fairy painter of the chocolate box stuff and the person who did the fairy fellas masterstroke is he's seen, um, possibly not with, you know, an objective reality that any of us would recognize, but he has seen what he is painting. Gosh. This so, is, so in a way, he needed to fully embrace and give into his, his interior world for it to be true, for it to be well, it, authentic. I, and it kind of is. Yeah. I mean, that is, you know, the, the joy of it is this weird authenticity. Um, and I think it's that, that every now and then, not everybody responds to the fairy fellas masterstroke. And I think it is something that, you know, more than any painting in the world, I tell people, no, you, have, you really have to see it in the flesh. Um, you know, you can, it is a wonderful thing to see the Mona Lisa or whatever, but, and, and you will see things that you would not have seen in a reproduction. But this one, it's like, honestly, reproduction, it's not giving you the thing. Uh, when you get there and you see this thing and you, you see the paint smeared on the daisies and you, and you find your eye questing mm -hmm. from character to character and you find yourself trying to decode um, yeah. and, and feeling like if only you had the key. Um, and he provides the poem, doesn't he? But in a way, that's a frustration to the expiration, isn't it? Because the he's trying to explain you, what everyone's doing. Exactly. The, the poem doesn't, gives you nothing. Yeah. Um, it really doesn't. It's a cloaking, though. I love the idea that it's actually, I think, in a way, it, it's cloaking what he's really trying to do behind words. Uh, it's clever. Well, it, and, <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's saying, you know, I know who all of these people are. The biggest yeah. thing about it is... You know, and the, if, it might also have been better if he was in any way any kind of a poet. Pretty terrible. It's really, <laughs> it's he is not. Terrible. That he is not a poet, and he is writing a poem does not help. No. <laughs> it's like you yeah. know, you're going, Mr. Dad. If you'd have taken the time you spent <laughs> on the poem and just finished the painting. Yeah. But uh, but of course, I mean, the story of how we got the painting and how we by we I mean you know essentially the nation is is a weird one. Um, he gave the painting to, I believe, the warden of Broadmoor. Yes. Yeah. Either it's either, uh, memory of course is a, is a thing, it was either the warden or the chaplain, one of those two he gave it to. And um, it wound up being with the poet Siegfried Sassoon's um, family, mm. I think his brother, who made it as a bequest, they owned it for some years, and gave it as a bequest to the nation. Mm. And then he um, commemorates the grand, the, the nephews, doesn't he? The nephews yeah. of, of dad. And it, it's that wonderful circularity of the story coming back and that it, it's emerged again. But I mean, I think, I think you're absolutely right about needing to encounter it because for me, the frustration is 
in nine years of tinkering with this painting, I want to know the underdrawings and the underpaintings. I want to know what was rubbed out and covered over. It feels like a mind playing out it over does. years on a canvas. It, 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 but it also, I mean, the weird thing about it also is you look at that and you go, but, but you don't get there accidentally. Yeah. There must have been, you know, the complex underdrawing that took you to this design, yeah. which does not lead the eye around in any way that a painting is meant to lead the eye around. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's like, again, what you were saying with you have no key. Mm -hmm. And so you just sort of begin somewhere in the middle and then you start looking at things mm -hmm. and then you'll look at things that are all the same kind of size and then you'll suddenly realize that something that was almost out of focus to you because you were looking at things that were this size, but, but behind them is something that size that you just, you simply didn't see because you weren't looking at that scale and that, that kind of thing just... The, the cinema, I mean, I think there's a really cinematic aspect to this, particularly the sort of use of the grass in the foreground. I mean, that's a mm -hmm. trick in photography, isn't it? But again, it almost feels like a captured moment glanced through a secret moment. And, and that, that whole lower part with the grass and the way it cuts up the scene, to me, it, it makes it all the more... Uh, difficult to penetrate and get to yeah. and then you've got the scales like you talk about I mean it's just it's an endless problem to be un unpicked isn't it I love the idea that we're talking about a painting as a problem yeah I know that's what it's for I mean you know, everything about it is problematic it is, it is it, you know it is unfinished yeah um, and you can go through it and you'll notice I mean you know I pointed out to you the, the blade that you'd never noticed before, but you'll see, you'll see blades of grass, you'll see just weird little bits that are, again, they're just, just this beautiful light brown of undercoat. Um, the fact that it's almost impossible to reproduce, the fact that it has this strange story, the fact that we don't know why he stopped doing it. If he gave it away, it wasn't like somebody took it from him, so why did point, he stop? Yeah, yeah. Um, the idea of you know, I, I look at that and I keep winding up um, building stories because one of the things that my head does is build stories. And, and, I, I, and I'm not alone in it, mm -hmm. you know. I love the fact that Terry did. Uh, Angela Carter wrote a, a radio play, a very beautiful one called Come Unto These Yellow Sands, mm -hmm. um, stealing the title from a, a, a dad painting. Mm -hmm. um, Again, about Dad, about the fairy fellas' masterstroke. There's, there's a lovely writer named Mark Chadburn did um, did a did a novella about it. You can tell it's just something that when when particularly writers of fiction run into this thing, they want to do something with it. They want to complete it. It's like it's like a set of notes that doesn't complete. So you want. You just want to sing that last note and finish it. I was utterly delighted when you suggested it because for me, this is how, this is how I would see you in art. <laughs> it's got that mix. I mean, it's got these allusions to Shakespeare, to folklore, to mythology, to the fantastical, to the mythical, and the idea of, of you know, creating something new out of it that's that's coming from that borderline between sanity and madness, but it's, it's, it's perfect. I love, and I love the fact that Richard Dad is not, um, has never been enthusiastically welcomed into the artistic corpus of the nation. He doesn't fit anywhere. At the point when he fit, he was not a very good artist. Um, afterwards, he's not somebody whose work was you know, we hung, exposed. People were not exposed to it and didn't react to it. The fact that it hangs in, in the, 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 or it hung in, in the pre-Raphaelite room is, is an accident of we've got to put it somewhere. Exactly. It fits that date, so we'll put it in that room. But I think, again, it's outsidery. It's got that uh, element of the outsider. And I, and I love that. I love the fact that you could point to someone like, I don't know, Henry Darger or somebody, and, um, or, or Rizzoli, or the, the, these guys who really are the great outsider artists, and you can go, well, he's one of them, only with transcendent painting skills. 
which an infinite time. <laughs> That's um, the other thing. Know, infinite time in Broadmoor, in Bedlam, exactly, to paint. Pendulette of Penn and Teller mm. told me about a guy he knew who was sentenced to 15 years for some kind of crime and spent his entire time in solitary practicing dealing off the bottom. Really? And uh, when it was when he got out and became the best bottom dealer that there had ever been. And he would go out and you know, do these workshops where he would teach people how to deal off the bottom. And Penn was saying, but at the end of the day, the real secret was you spend 15 years dealing off the bottom exactly. and doing nothing but that for 50, you know, all day while you're awake for 15 years and then you come out and you, you can, can do, do it. it. Yeah. And there is, there is part of that. Mm. Did that influence Shadow by any chance, that story? And I don't when Shadow was in prison? It might actually have done. The, yeah. I, the idea of, um, because I definitely heard it from Penn in about 98, and I started writing American Gods in 99. So yeah, it probably did. Yay. Um, <laughs> the, the, although, I mean, with um, American Gods, one of the things that I just loved was using coin tricks as a metaphor that would run all the way through the story. Yes. And... Um, well, it's going back to the, the thing we were talking about at the beginning with the Norse and what they're so good at is, unlike Christian context, fate is completely objective. And, and you know, oh, it absolutely. is the Norns will cut you off or the norns will save you, and it doesn't matter what you do. It's going to come to you regardless. And I love that worldview. I think that's a really interesting just thing that, that goes right deep down inside your psyche, that if you feel like that, that it is the flip of a coin, that's something different, isn't it? Well, it, it's, it's, it always reminds me of the heroes of, of Grimm's fairy tales in particular, because um, they're awful. I mean, the heroes of Grimm's, the, the, the heroines are not bad. But the heroes, you, you sort of look at most of them and you go, you are the hero of this story because the story says you are the hero. Yeah. Very often you are feckless and a bit rubbish, um, but you wind up coming to the end of the story having got the thing, whatever the thing is, and you know you have the kingdom, you have the girl, only because you are the hero of the story and everything in the story conspires. Mm -hmm to get you to the end of it. Fate is on your side. There is no particular reason why, you know, sun numbers one, two, and three set out their, their fortune and, you know. Mm -hmm. But the, yeah, it's the unpredictability of it. And actually, I mean, just thinking again, just as we close on this, I think it is that that is again another thing about the composition of this that frustrates that there isn't, there isn't a sequence, there isn't a narrative that's clear. No. And, and maybe that appeals to writers as a result. I think what appeals to writers is the fact that you can choose your own adventure. Mm. What, what you can find years ago, um, I thought it would be a wonderful idea. I never did it, and the idea is anybody's. But I thought, wouldn't it be fun? Back in the days of big shared world anthologies, when, when books with lots of authors were a, a thing, I thought it would be great to take the fairy fellas' masterstroke, mark off every single character and send them out to authors and just say, I want to do a story that all of you, you know, do me a story about one of these characters, pick yours. You need um, to do this. No, this I don't. To I happen. have too many things to do. <laughs> You're too busy as you good are. I'm, I'm failing to write introductions right now. I'm, You're I'm rubbish. You're fascinated by Egyptian I am. stories. There's all these, and I have <laughs> the sequel of To American Gods to write. I have the sequel to Never Wear the oh, Finish. Oh, life. New books to write. Um, I know. And there's only one of me. There's only one of you, but... And nobody's nice, uh, you know, a nice, kind person would just put me in Broadmoor <laughs> for 15 years and say, okay, here's, here's all the paper. Here's pens and paper. Here's your pens, here's your paper. <laughs> Come out when you're ready. Yeah, and with a masterpiece. Exactly. Oh, gosh, yeah, I know. Life doesn't fold out like that. But oh, listen, we must wind it up because you are right. You're a busy man and you've given me so much of your precious time. Oh. It's a, a treat. I don't want this conversation to end, but I must let you go. Thank you. You're so welcome. It's Thank amazing. you so much for asking me to be on. And, and I love the fact that I get to... Um, 
you know, A, point people to Richard Dabb, which is always a joy, and B, the fact that you can take that painting and go anywhere. And there are very few pieces of art, or perhaps all pieces of art that you can do that. You know, I mean, that's the, it's, it's that sort of James Birkin connections yeah. thing of, you can take something and go anywhere. But there's, for me, the piece that goes to the most places the fastest is probably the fairy fellas masterstroke. And think of all the things we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about madness. We didn't talk about repression. And we didn't talk about um, Richard Dad's obsessions with the, with the Egyptian gods, which would have taken us back to there. Oh, there was so much more. And we'll have to do another one. We will. I will have to get you again. <laughs> You're Thank on. you so much, Neil. You're so welcome. Thank you. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.